What if instead of doing all of your shopping on the internet that is really distance shopping, what if you could actually get things from your local stores or even from your local community through Craigslist and things would show up very, very quickly? Think of what that would do to local commerce, let alone just what it will do for us as a business, but how might that actually change the way in which local commerce is conducted? Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I am Kirsten Korosek, senior reporter with TechCrunch. I'm Alex Roy of the No Parking Podcast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And today, for his second time on the Atonicast, uh, we are joined, uh, this time from Neuro, David Estrada. Welcome, David. Hello, guys. Good to speak with you today. All right. Well, Alex, what an in, in, incredibly articulate question do you have for David? I know you have something. What a setup. That's such an unfair setup. I have to recuse myself a lot this episode uh, because uh, it's neuro and they're, uh, uh, you know, come, can we start over? Before you guys actually joined, um, those of us who are on time, uh, <laughs> had a, I had a question for uh, for David. Um, so, so David's actually been on the Atonicast before. Uh, when he was, uh, I think, chief legal officer at Bird. I remember that one. Yeah, and that wasn't that long ago. Um, and so I was, I was just asking him, um, sort of, you know, Bird and, and Neuro are both in the mobility space, uh, both technology companies, but like quite different as well. And so I was just curious about his his background uh, before working at both those companies. Sort of, what was the the career tra- trajectory that uh, that that brought him to these two very interesting and, and exciting companies? Cool. Let's go. Let's jump in the way back machine because it goes way, way back. So as you know, what I'm doing now is I'm leading what we call the public trust function here at Neuro. And public trust includes the policy team um, working with the federal government and state governments on, on policy for autonomous vehicles. It also includes legal communications and safety because of course, safety is the most important thing we're trying to get right in this industry. So if we jump way back, the question is, how did I get into this in the first place? And like a lot of people's careers, it was pure happenstance. So I was a lawyer. I went to law school at UC Berkeley and and worked as a litigator for a number of years and then started working at tech companies, the first one being Yahoo. Um, I went from Yahoo to YouTube. YouTube gets bought by Google. And then lo and behold, a few years later, Google creates this secretive lab called Google X way back in 2011. And, And Google at the time was a search engine and started to branch out beyond being a search engine. But the founders of Google got really, really interested in the idea of automobile safety and self driving cars. So they created this project called Chauffeur. And and then ultimately, they, they wanted a lawyer to come over to the team and help figure out how to make self-driving cars legal. So I joined that team in 2012, and it included the original cast of characters, all of whom have gone on to create their own self-driving car companies. And here I am at one of them with two of the people who were on that team early on, Dave Ferguson and Jay-Z, and we're continuing the journey. So I'm sorry. So you were you were involved with the with the Firefly. It sounds like then, which was one of the first big uh, FMVSS for AV sort of projects. Yes. Cool. Well, <laughs> we'll get into that in a sec. Kirsten, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just wondering what prompted you to 
sort of leave the autonomous vehicle space for a, a, a bit and go to Bird? Was it just that you saw this opportunity and a lot of interest around scooters because of there was this this um, obviously some tension with um, public officials on the city level? Um, why did you jump over to Bird before you know now coming back to Neuro? Well, there were a couple of other steps too. When I was at Google, we were we were busy building self-driving cars, but I did realize it was very, very early. So this was back in 2011, 2012, and Google was the only one doing it. It was exciting, but I, I knew it was quite far off. And I was excited about some other uh, transportation changes that were happening immediately. And one of those was Lyft. And this was in 2014 before ride sharing really became a thing. When I caught my first Lyft, some guy shows up in a, in a car with a cracked wheel, windshield and a giant fuzzy mustache out on the front. And I hopped in the front seat and gave him a fist bump. And that was the early days of ride sharing. And it really excited me that this new form of transportation was coming along that I could, that I could impact. Because at the time, it was not this accepted thing that it is now. At the time, it was being called quasi, quasi illegal or flat out illegal. And so I got involved in that and helped shape ride-sharing laws across the country. And after that, I went to back to work with one of my former friends, uh, Sebastian Thrun, who I had worked with at Google X. I'm so glad you're bringing this up because this is what I wanted to talk about. Oh, good. So, you know, Sebastian started Google X and he brought the self-driving car program to Google. And, and then Sebastian went to do some other things as well. And he had been working with Larry Page for quite a while on a secretive project to build flying cars. Sebastian got me really excited about that while I was at Lyft because I really kept looking for what are, what's the mode of transportation that's going to get us beyond traffic, get us beyond gridlock, get us beyond ridiculous CO2 emissions. And he got me excited about flying cars and we helped build this fledgling company called Kitty Hawk. So I went to Kitty Hawk and worked with Sebastian on that for a while uh, and then got got again excited about something much more immediate when I saw, again, some former colleagues from Lyft create this thing called Bird scooter sharing, which was happening right now. And that's what brought me to Bird was helping establish another new form of transportation that would get us outside of gridlock. So your personal brand is the legal guy who figures out how to make it legal for new modes before they hit the market. You're like the cutting edge of that. That's what I've done a number of times. So nice when I was at, when I was at Google, helped pass the first laws for self-driving cars. When I was at Lyft, helped pass ride-sharing laws across the country. When I was at Kitty Hawk, really did help get this one thing up into the air, the Kitty Hawk flyer. And then at Bird, yeah, we, we got Bird from three cities to 100 cities during my time there. Now, before we get into the hard conversation that it defines a Tonicast, can you share with us, since you obviously have been the first attorney to walk into a room and try to convince anybody that they should allow the technology behind the company you represent to be deployed, what was the most incredulous statement <laughs> or that you ever heard from someone on the other side of the table? Well, if we look at um, the various types of technologies, there were people doubting all of these things. So you, you doubt whether a car can drive itself and should be able to drive itself with nobody in it. 
you doubt whether a flying car is ever going to take off and be allowed to land anywhere in a city. You doubt that scooters should, um, in some people's words, litter city sidewalks, in other people's words, release us from our cars. And and then here we are, um, you know, back to cars driving themselves again. I think the thing that people just really doubted and continue to doubt is, can we put vehicles on the road that can safely drive themselves, that can operate just as so, as safely as humans? Has the conversations, if you go back in your way back machine, as you were talking about, to the very first conversations when you were at X um, with local city officials, has the conversation or the types of conversations changed from then to now? I mean, are, are for example... Are you finding that um, I would imagine that in early days, much of your conversations were educational? And I'm wondering if that's changed, if uh, city officials are savvier than they were a decade ago or almost a decade ago. Um, what what is What has changed? Or is it the same? It has changed dramatically. So if we look back into 2011, the concept of a self-driving car was brand new. Nobody had ever really conceived of it. There were people who were excited about it and people who were afraid of it. Today, everybody has heard of them. And in big cities, the transportation leads have been in them. Folks from across the country have seen them on TV and seen them in the news. It's become normalized. And now, when while it's become normalized, the question is, how does it fit into our transportation system and our transportation grid? And and what is what are those? I mean, what is the is there a consensus? I mean, how how does it fit into our grid? And what are what are folks telling you? Or what are their biggest concerns? Well, if you look at, I like to look at Los Angeles as having the leading thinker and new mobility, and that's Salita Reynolds. I got to know Salita Reynolds really well while I worked at Bird in, in Los Angeles. I bet and, you did. I bet you did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Salita and I actually, we, we, really, we really got along well, and she, she welcomed in the scooters under the right set of rules. And she, she's really dedicated to moving people beyond cars. She was one of the one of the first to put a bike program in place, and she welcomed the scooters in while trying to balance them with with safety concerns. She's also really really interested in autonomous vehicles, and the way she's thinking about it is, we want autonomous vehicles in here to get people to share rides, and in the case of neuro, to to in, instead pull people out of cars and let them actually stay at home while they get things delivered to them. And when we do that, we want to see how can they interact with the city's technology. I think Salita might be the most advanced in thinking that there can be a system, and she's created something called MDS. And and what MDS is, is essentially an API into a, into a city's transportation grid that can do some data sharing, and it can be two-way data sharing. For instance, the vehicles themselves can report on where they are, and and the city can report on its own infrastructure. So, for example, the city can report back, hey, you're about to approach a traffic light that is not functioning. Be careful. Or here are some rules around curb space. 
This is something that has not reached a consensus at all, but it's an idea that has been most advanced by by Salida and, and the LADOT. Around the rest of the country, I think the way cities are looking at it is they want to be at the table. They saw that what happened with ride sharing was ride sharing came very quickly. Lyft and Uber would launch in cities and they would instantly become very, very popular with their users. It caused some disruption in the taxi industry, as you know. And we quickly got laws passed at the state level that that govern the ride sharing systems. Cities felt left out of that because the the vehicles were driving on city streets. And originally what we thought was we would create a lot of ride sharing and we we would actually decrease traffic, decrease VMT and CO2 because we would get more people in the cars instead of single single occupancy. But the data have now become clear that ride sharing has actually increased traffic. And cities felt like they lost control of that one. And so they'd like to be included in the conversation for any new modes of transportation that happen. So what is your, um, are you, it sounds like you personally think that MDS is, is a good, is a good creation. Um, or what, what, where do you fall on that? Um, as it, as it stands now, I mean, do you support it, but think it should be used in a different way or do you think it's good as is? It's really nascent. And currently how it's being used is to manage the the bike sharing and scooter sharing programs in Los Angeles. Now that is a fully regulated system. Where it gets where it gets different with vehicles is is who's regulating the vehicles. Now when so when you look at uh, the reason why the scooters and bikes are regulated by cities, it's because they're they're parking on city sidewalks or city streets where curb management is under the control of the city. And therefore the city has has a basis to require them to share data. But when you look at vehicles operating in the streets, just like all other vehicles and vehicles, the safety standards are governed by the federal government and the driving standards are governed by the state government. There really isn't a a city regulatory hook. Um, So I think if you start with the idea of, well, is there authority to require it? It doesn't look like there's, it doesn't look like there's authority to require it. But if you look at, is it a good idea? Should there be some data sharing so that the city is, again, part of the transportation solution and the city shares data back with the companies who are operating? I think there are benefits on both sides. The big news from, from Neuro last week was um, the granting of, a, of an FMVSS, a Federal Motor Vehicle Safety That's Standard. That's not the big news. No, the, it's not the big news. It's the big news to me. In the my heart. real-time data sharing requirement the real time component isn't that the big news well that's that's part of it right so okay. that's that's oh, part I'm of the, the broader topic no 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 i mean i we we absolutely should get into that um but um i i just wanted to to sort of for some background to this to this news before we dive into that mm-hmm. um just sort of connect it to to the firefly project which again was was one of the first times that um you know a custom built or or purpose built uh, uh, autonomous vehicle um had to go and 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 try and find a way to work with this uh, motor vehicle safety standards that was very much, you know, written for uh, human-driven 
vehicles, traditional vehicles. Um, and, and so there's, there's, you know, always going to be real challenges, uh, with that. I'm curious, sort of a similar question to what Kirsten was asking earlier about, about the folks on the other side of the table. What's, what are the similarities and what are the differences between sort of, um, trying to get, uh, uh the Firefly, the Google Firefly, uh, approved for public road use, uh, and, and this more recent project with, uh, with Neuro? If you look back to what set up the Firefly project, you have to start with the video that we released back when I was part of the chauffeur program on March 28th, 2012. It was the Steve Mann video. Did, did you guys see that video where Steve took a drive and, and he went and picked up some Taco Bell and his, and his dry cleaning? Yeah. In fact, uh, John Kraftick was just on a recent episode of the Atonicast was just talking about this. It really, it really is worth looking at. And if you, and, and it will, it will draw a direct connection to, to answering your question about how did that relate to today's exemption? So if you look at what was in that video, we saw that the car was taking Steve to go run some errands. In the car, when it went to go run some errands, it had it had a person in the driver's seat and it had a person in the passenger seat. And the car had to do two things. It had to get get Steve from point A to point B to run his errands. It had to do so safely. It had to keep him safe. And it also had to keep people on the outside of the vehicle safe. And it had to serve a purpose. And, and for him, that purpose was going to pick some things up. Now, if you look at the vehicle that we're that we created at Neuro, this vehicle is intending to accomplish the same person, the same exact task, but it's doing it in the opposite way. Instead of taking Steve to go to Taco Bell drive-through and to go pick up his dry dry cleaning, the vehicle is going to pick the food up for him. It's going to pick his dry cleaning up for him, and it's going to bring those things to his house while he's spending his time doing something else. Now, when it's doing that. It doesn't need to keep anybody inside the car safe. Nobody is in the car, so nobody has the need to look at a backup camera. Nobody's in the car, so nobody has the need to look at side mirrors. And there's no need for a windshield. So our exemption applied to those three specific things. And when, when the exemption was granted, Secretary Chow said in a tweet, this vehicle has no driver and no passengers. Therefore, it makes no sense to have windshields or side mirrors. And and so with the with the um, you know, if you maybe just explain people what what FMVSS, what these these motor vehicle safety standards are, because there's so much confusion around around regulation and autonomous vehicles, and and people, I think a lot of people think that maybe there's like a specific regulatory process for them, um, that that maybe these safety standards cover like the software that drives these these vehicles. Um, could you just explain sort of what, what is covered by these things um, and, and what isn't? They apply specifically to three things. One is, what is the equipment required to keep a driver safe inside the, in the driver's seat? What is required to keep a passenger safe? And what is required to keep people outside of the car safe? So, so for example, to keep all of those groups safe, windshield defrosting is required. Windshield wipers are required. For the passenger and the driver's head restraints are required. Uh, same thing for for airbags. So it's all it's all physical safety standards to keep those groups of individuals safe. Um, and and so there are two categories here too. And and I think it's really interesting that both of the uh, 
the Firefly and uh, the Neuro R2 are both have exemptions within this FMVSS 500, I believe, category, which is for low-speed vehicles. Um, it, it seems to me, and and as not an expert in this, that this is almost a, a little bit of an accident of history, right? That the, the FMVSS 500 was not created for autonomous vehicles, and yet because it was, uh, it's sort of a little bit provides a little more flexibility, certainly around the human controls aspect of it. Um, that this is sort of the space where uh, where autonomous vehicles are are looking at. In these two examples, uh, you've both used that. Is is that is that fair to say that's an accident of history? Does FMVSS 500 actually work quite well? that is or, or do we need to move towards a new a new category you think it works really well because it doesn't require a lot of standards that are and should be inapplicable to autonomous vehicles so particularly vehicles that aren't going to carry people and that's why it works particularly well for neuro it also works really well because it's a good starting point a vehicle that is lightweight and goes 25 miles per hour is an excellent vehicle to start with to put on the roads something that is going to be more likely to be trusted in society than a very, very large vehicle, say a 3,000 pound vehicle that could do a lot more damage. So is this purely a function of, of just of mass and speed? I mean, is, is, is the argument here basically just that if something is, is below a certain mass and, and, and operating below a certain speed, it's just fundamentally less dangerous than uh, a, a full vehicle, which is really not limited at all in terms of, of mass or speed? A lighter weight vehicle going at a slower speed is fundamentally safer to those outside the vehicle and inside the vehicle. So starting with a, a low speed vehicle is the best starting point for an autonomous vehicle. And then if you if you look deeper and say, well, why did they create these rules? So back in 1998, what happened was people started to drive golf carts around certain communities, particularly retirement communities in Palm Springs. And so the, the local government in that area decided, let's create some standards for our area because people are driving these and we actually want to encourage it. It's a liberating way for people who live in these retirement communities to get around town. But we want some basic safety standards. And they realized that because the vehicles were going slow, if accidents occurred, they weren't likely to be life-threatening accidents when they were going under 25 miles per hour. And so they wanted an appropriate set of state safety standards for a, a small, low-speed vehicle. And that's why those standards were, were tailored to that particular vehicle. And so if we start with those standards and then say, Imagine you're never going to have anybody in the driver's seat of that vehicle, and you're never going to have anybody in the passenger seat of that vehicle. Now, just go ahead and do a line editing exercise and take out those things that would apply only to if you had a passenger or if you had a driver. So um, in the case of Neuro, it was three specific exemptions, correct? So it was the side view, side mirrors don't need to be there, uh, the backup camera, um, Basically, it can continue to have a visual display because there's no one in the in the driver's seat. And then remind me what the what the third one was. It was windshield. Oh yeah, backup. Yeah, windshield, backup camera, and side mirrors. Right. And and just to to give you, I think it's really interesting to talk through. Well, how are we going to comply with these in the first place? It's a really good exercise to think about complying with standards because they exist, whether or not they make sense. 
Now, if we didn't get this exemption, we had we had a fallback. The fallback was we put these very small mirrors on the vehicle. And what happened when we put these very small mirrors on the vehicle? They performed zero function. They did not add to safety because they could not be used by anyone inside the vehicle who would never be there. But they could actually detract from safety because you're putting something extra on the car that could, for instance, when you're going by a bicyclist, could possibly graze a bicyclist. And if you remove that, you, you actually make the road safer. They could also cause more reflection. If you get sun reflection in a mirror, sometimes that can get that can go ahead and that can block the vision of another driver. And so removing that that mirror actually creates more safety. On the windshield, there were there were not any specifications on the size of the windshield you needed. So we created a very, very small windshield. And it would literally pass the requirement but serve no purpose. And when you when you look at us having to essentially jump through a few regulatory hoops because they exist, you see that it was time to make some changes. So in your view, um, will the, for, for the companies that aren't going to be doing autonomous delivery, but actually want to shuttle people around, is the best bet for them to fall under this low speed vehicle designation? So, so you know, create vehicles that are not going to go over 25 miles an hour, um, but they will shuttle passengers. And I know that there'll be other exemptions that would be required because of that. But is that, in your view, a easier um, hurdle um, than, let's say, um, you know, a highway speed vehicle, you know, getting that kind of exemption? It's definitely a... a lower regulatory burden. So if you were to decide, I want to create a vehicle that is going to travel at under 25 miles per hour and also meet the rate, the weight requirements, producing that vehicle and meeting the standards is something you can do uh, much more reasonably. Now, the thing is, you'd have to realize you're going to, if you're going to shuttle people, you're going to be using that vehicle in a relatively confined space. And I know you've discussed recently the idea of shuttles for downtown city centers. And that might be something that would work well for a downtown city center. The, the issue is, how well does it work when you have to travel on some 35 and 45 mile per hour roads? In a lot of places, it, it is legal. So you can operate a vehicle at 25 miles per hour on those roads. But it could also cause some issues with regard to how the other motorists feel. So are we are we stuck with low speed vehicles as being like the only way to get autonomous vehicles approved for the road in in the near term? Um, and is that is that a big problem? Like I, I guess in, specifically in Neuro's case, is this does it harm you know your business model, your your unit economics, anything like that to be limited by speeds in this way? And and sort of beyond that, again, like are you know, is there a path to getting beyond just sort of hacking this this or using this sort of low speed vehicle thing as, as sort of a hack just to get stuff actually on the road because the the the, the bar is way too high for a uh, for a non low speed vehicle low speed vehicle? There is a path. We're really excited that NHTSA has actually already announced a proposed rulemaking for what they would call a passengerless vehicle. It's something we've been speaking with them for quite a while about. And what we're working with them on is getting that prioritized. So if you look at 
how did the rule get passed for low speed vehicles back in 1998? The vehicles were already out on the roads and they were already operating safely. And a proposed rule was put together by the local government in the Palm Springs area. NHTSA decided to prioritize rulemaking for the LSV and they completed it within two years. Now, if you look at the problem we're trying to solve, what we're saying is we absolutely would like our vehicle to travel at speeds in excess of 25 miles per hour so we can service larger areas of cities. We do want the vehicle to be able to travel on those 35 and 45 mile per hour roads in a way that keeps up with other traffic. What would be required to make that happen? If you start with the standards that apply to small trucks and passenger cars, you see that there is a there are a series of rules in the 100 and 200 series of FMVSS that apply exclusively to keeping the driver and passenger safe. The burden on NHTSA is quite light. It simply has to look at these standards and do a line editing exercise. And you can look at, for example, FMVSS 2016A, roof crush. There's a standard for the roof not crushing in on passengers. Well, if there are never going to be any passengers or a driver, just strike a line through it. What is FMVSS 210? Seatbelt anchorages. Strike a line through seatbelt anchorages. What is FMVSS 207? Seating systems. There are no seats. Strike a line through it. So you take this exercise on, and there's about 20 of these standards that are inapplicable. And NHTSA can make quite quick work of the actual substance of the rules themselves, and then take that through the regulatory process, which requires comments. And this should be able to be done within two years. Didn't, didn't the Volpa Center already sort of get the ball rolling on this with a, with a study? Yeah, it's been made it's been made really clear by those who have looked at it that the ability to do a rulemaking like this is not, it's not a heavy regulatory lift. It simply requires prioritizing. Which then, of course, I think, you know, would, would potentially bring you to a, a question of, okay, so, so you get rid of everything about uh, interior occupant uh, safety. Um, you keep exterior safety systems in, or, or regulations in place, um, then I think the, the fundamental question about, about safety and the role of regulation in all this becomes uh, sort of the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is, you know, what if any kind of regulation should be in place on the, on the automated driving system software itself? Um, is that something that you, and, and it seems to me that this is something that regulators are maybe rightly uh, very hesitant uh, to move towards. Um, is that is that your take as well? Do you think that's something we will see maybe sooner, later, ever? Um, and maybe how, how would be the best way to approach that? NHTSA wants to understand this space through as much data gathering as they can possibly get before they decide on how to regulate the ADS. As we've seen, they've been discussing this issue for about seven years since Google started meeting with them back in, say, 2012. And with this exemption that they've granted to us, we think that actually it allows us to work closely with them to give them a look at more data than they've gotten before. And we think that this might be the beginning of their ability to take a data approach to how does the ADS operate. We think that the right way to to look at the regulating is take a performance-based approach as opposed to regulating that 
the ADS, the ADSB created in a certain way. And so the performance-based approach would say, very much like states create regulations for us human drivers, treat the ADS as a driver because that's what it is. And the question is, how does that driver need to perform in certain circumstances? And when is it okay for that driver to simply pull over to the side of the road if it can't handle certain circumstances? So if you think about that, you can you can gather the data necessary to prove performance with a lot of simulated driving and a lot of on-road driving. And if NHTSA looks at creating certain performance standards that could say, here are 400 different driving scenarios, for example. Could be 400, could be 4,000. Now, put the ADS through this course and let's see how it performs. And the thing to think through is, if you look at how states have taken care of this, because states have always been the governmental entity to create rules of the road for drivers. What the, what the states do is they say, you driver, you have to come to our DMV and you have to take a driver's test. And the driver's test is going to cause you to learn the rules of the road. So what to do at intersections, how fast to go through a school zone. And it's going to have you look at an eye chart and make sure that your vision is good enough. And then we're going to take you on this live driving test and see how you perform. And then we're also going to create standards that say, when do you simply have to pull over because it's too unsafe to drive? So you might have to pull over if the, if the roads are too icy, or you might have to pull over if the roads are too foggy. If you take that and overlay that onto the ADS, it's a very sensible way of approaching what are you going to require the autonomous driving system to do? And when should the autonomous driving system say, the conditions are too unsafe right now. The best thing for me to do is to pull over. Could that be potentially problematic for AV developers if each state comes up with, you know, as there are oftentimes slightly different rules depending on the state, you know, when you go and get your driver's license, they're mostly the same, but there are some, you know, unique differences sometimes. Do you see that as as probably how that will play out, that, that each state, if under the scenario you talk about, would end up having sort of a different standards or different rules of the road? Or do you see more that states will work together to, um, or at the federal level, um, something will occur to create a more national standard? How do you see that playing out? So far, what we see is a list of states have created rules for autonomous driving systems because they have used their traditional authority as the entity that governs the licensing of a driver. And they have treated autonomous vehicles as drivers. But they, what they haven't done is they haven't created these types of driving tests that I'm talking about. Instead, what they've done is they have. They have required a variety of systems. For instance, in California, they have pre-market approval. And what they do is they look at you as the operator of vehicles and they say, if you want to operate your autonomous vehicle on the public roads of the state of California, you have to apply for these permits. The first one would be a permit to drive a vehicle while you have safety drivers in the car. And after you've proven the safety of of that system, then you can graduate to applying for a permit that operates an autonomous vehicle without a safety driver in the car. So it's driverless. 
And then if you satisfy the state that you've done that safely, now you can apply for a permit to deploy commercially. But what they didn't do is they didn't create these IHAR tests and these tests of driving around the block and making sure that the vehicle performs well. They, they create different sets of standards. One of the standards they created was looking at the number of disengagements the, the vehicle has. So how frequently does, does the autonomous driving system run into a situation where it, it isn't quite sure what to do and therefore it disengages and puts the driving control back on the human operator? Some other states like Texas and Arizona have treated autonomous driving systems more like other types of products with a liability perspective of, we're going to require you to have a high level of insurance in case there is an accident so that any victims of an accident can get adequate compensation for that. And they also require that the vehicles comply with all federal motor vehicle safety standards. So back to your question about essentially this patchwork, if 50 states pass 50 different systems, it does become very problematic, especially if they're inconsistent. So should the government, should the federal government pass one standard? I've been saying since I, since I gave a, a talk on this back in 2012 or 2013, absolutely, I think the federal government should pass a single standard. And, and it should be informed by what's going on in the states right now, what works better, and, and what hasn't worked quite so well. I'm saying um, not that it should be, not that you should actually, you know, hop in the car with somebody like a federal DMV and, and drive the, the car around the block and, and see how you perform and you get a license. But, but it's, it's analogous in the sense that what we have to realize is when we talk about regulating the ADS, what we're talking about is the ADS is a driver. The ADS has to know what to do at a stop sign. The ADS has to read stop uh, or it has to read um, speeds and it has to perform at the appropriate speed. So it has to do all of those things to comply with the rules of the road and be a safe driver. But that has always been something that the states have governed, not the federal government. But the problem is now that we're putting out a vehicle that can do this through its own mechanisms, we're venturing into the land that has traditionally been governed by the federal government, federal motor vehicle safety standards for the equipment on a car. And so these two ideas have merged, complying with the rules of the road and the equipment that is on the car. And what I'm saying is the appropriate thing to do is create some performance standards for the ADS so that we can trust that the ADS will comply with the rules of the road. So federal performance standards for the ADS, and then the companies will self-confirm that they meet these standards? I do think that that system has, has been the, the best system in the world for the vehicles that come onto the market. So it, it, if you look at what we have here in the United States, the federal motor vehicle safety standards are a system in which we self-certify. So all of the automakers look at the long list of requirements, they complete all of the tests that are required for federal motor vehicle safety standards. And they put a vehicle on the market with a self-certification, a stamp that goes on the, on the vehicle that says, we certify that this vehicle complies with all federal motor vehicle safety standards. 
And when they do so, what NHTSA has the authority to do is issue a recall if it believes that there's anything unsafe on the vehicle or that it is failing to comply with a particular standard. Now, we don't think that it would be wise to change that system because that system has worked quite well. So um, on the data sharing piece of this, which I think is really interesting, I mean, the way you you kind of framed it, it's almost like there's a deal here where it's like, you know, and obviously NHTSA is doing their due diligence and they're making sure that your your arguments about safety are, are strong. But but at a certain point, it almost seems like, you know, we give you an exemption, you give us the data that allows us to make progress towards this bigger problem of, of understanding and, and, and regulating uh, the safety of the ADS itself. Did that idea come from, from Neuro? Was that something that NHTSA demanded? Like, what is that? What, if, and, and is my sort of characterization of that sort of exchange uh, uh, an accurate or fair one? They did issue data sharing requirements, and we, we received them when we received the exemption. And it is the first time that, that NHTSA has created such requirements because it's the first time that they've granted an exemption. We do think it's fair of NHTSA to, to say, hey, this is a bargain. We are giving you an exemption. It's the first time we've ever done this. We are a safety regulator, and we want to make sure that when you're operating, you're operating safely. And, and here are some requirements. The question is, of course, are they the right requirements? And how well will the data be, be protected? And this is always a question that, that companies have raised when governments have required data sharing. It's a competitive landscape. And when I share my data with a governmental entity, I want to make sure that if I'm sharing something proprietary that I find could give me a competitive advantage or disadvantage, depending on what my competitors know about it. That's something I want to be careful about, and I want to, to make sure that the federal government can, can help protect my interests. So this is the kind of thing, since this is the very first time that NHTSA is wading, in, wading, into, wading into this territory, that we want to address. Do you think we can expect more of that, more, more requirements for data sharing for, for these kinds of exemptions? I do think so. And the reason is NHTSA is a safety organization that depends upon research. If they don't have data and they don't have research, their staff who come up with rules don't have the basis for creating those rules. And and as far as the implementation of this goes, like, is there agreement? Uh, have you have you figured out sort of the the nuts and bolts of that data sharing, and and is there a consensus on that, or is that something you need to continue to discuss before you can implement it? We need to continue to discuss it. When we received the exemption just a few days ago, the data sharing requirements were included in the exemption, so we haven't yet had a chance to talk to them about it. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey 
and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Can I, can we switch it up to fun, juicy, feisty questions? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So serious. Way too serious. Uh, All right. uh, uh, David, I understand if you can't or won't answer this question. Totally understood. Good okay. lead in. <laughs> oh, right. This is juicy one. Juicy one. Okay. So SoftBank is an investor in Neuro. Yes? I will answer that one. Yes. <laughs> okay. So um, there has been a lot of uh, press lately about SoftBank having some issues. And um, m- some of their investments have been suboptimal. But the the, the thing that I, you haven't seen anyone say is Neuro appears – to have gotten to a milestone successfully um, ahead of, I mean, cruises misses milestones. Neuro appears to have met a milestone. Was this on schedule for Neuro? This this vehicle release was this what how it was supposed to go? Because that's big news. That's positive news for the industry. I think putting everything in context, if you look at what investors do and then what SoftBank does in particular is SoftBank looks for world-changing investments. It reminds me of when I was at Google X and Google referred to what they were investing in as moonshots. And inherent in the word moonshot is this is hard. And what we're going to try to achieve is something that frequently is not going to work, but if it works, it's going to be world-changing and it's going to add an incredible amount of value. So I do believe that those are the kinds of investments that SoftBank is interested in. And when you invest in those kinds of things, you have to understand that some are going to work and some are not going to work. SoftBank exists because first, they were incredibly successful at creating something called SoftBank. And then they invested in this thing called Yahoo Japan, which made many, many billions. And then they invested in this tiny little thing called Alibaba, which is now one of the world's biggest companies. Now, there are probably a bunch of a bunch of investments they've made along the way that haven't worked so well, but the ones that have have been enormous. So if you apply that to what we're doing here at Neuro, we know that what we're going for is a gigantic market. We're fundamentally looking to change the way we think about transportation. And what does that mean? In the entire AV space, most of what we all talk about is, well, we're going to move people around in these autonomous vehicles now instead of moving them around in vehicles that they drive themselves. And then the question is, why? What's the point? The point that I frequently hear is it's going to keep people safer. And then another point that you hear is, well, you can also do some carpooling. But I don't hear people say, well, why are you moving people around in the first place? Why not move things around and move things to people? And that's the the focus that we have. And if you look at that market, there's about 400 billion car trips that take place just in the United States where people go around their towns to run errands, just to pick things up, just like Steve did when... He took that world-changing first trip in a a vehicle, in an autonomous vehicle, so that he could go to Taco Bell and that he could go to pick up his dry cleaning. Basic stuff. That's, That's what transportation is these days. Basic stuff. Going to the Taco Bell drive through and going to pick up my dry cleaning. And we don't talk enough about why should people be taking those trips? And for many of them, 
wouldn't we rather spend our time doing something else? Now, maybe not all of those trips, maybe some of those trips we want to take, maybe we actually enjoy getting out of the house sometimes. Absolutely. When we want to get out of the house, we should get out of the house. But what about when we don't? What about if I'm sitting at the kitchen table working with my daughter on some homework, and instead of having to go pick up my dry cleaning, it would be great if it comes to me. Think of those 400 billion trips. If you can actually replace a lot of those with a small, safe, autonomous vehicle bringing things to you, that's a gigantic market. And now the exemption in the context of this allows us to start doing this in a very real way. And we're starting on doing it in one city in Houston, Texas. And we're doing it in partnership with partners we've announced and then ultimately partners that we haven't yet announced. But the ones we've announced include Domino's and Walmart. And we're and Kroger's who we're already delivering with. And if you think about how does this look at scale? The way it looks at scale is there was this thing called local commerce. And local commerce in the past 10 or 15 years has been declining. It's been declining because we do so much of our shopping on the internet and those goods come from farther away and we, we aren't going to our local stores anymore. What if instead of doing all of your shopping on the internet that is really distance shopping, what if you could actually get things from your local stores or even from your local community through Craigslist? And things would show up very, very quickly. Think of what that would do to local commerce, let alone just what it will do for us as a business. But how might that actually change the way in which local commerce is conducted? So back to why does SoftBank want to invest in that? Because it's gigantic. This Estrada guy is really good. His media training is crazy. (laughs) Well done. Um, Make sure not to edit that part out. This is Strata guy. Wow. They should send him out for everything. So um, I will, I rest. I'll rest. Um, You You rest rest your case. All right. Well, that was fast. (laughs) What? Uh, Well, as we, as we sort of, um, you know, we've covered a lot of areas and I'm, so I'm curious what you see happening this year, not just for neuro, but for the industry as a whole, Um, because there's a, a lot of ways this can go. And, you know, I hate to be a skeptic, but I kind of wonder if the federal government is going to um, really get its act together um, or if this is going to be continually punted sort of down the line. And you're much closer to it than I am. So what do you see? How do you see it playing out in 2020 in terms of on on the regulatory side of things um, within the AV industry? This is going to be part optimism and part belief of what's going on. We think that this exemption is something that's really going to kickstart what NHTSA has been talking about for quite a few years. NHTSA has been making a lot of positive statements about the value that autonomous vehicles can bring to the world. Now, NHTSA is invested in the exemption that they gave and gathering data from that investment. What does that mean? They're going to actually assign people at NHTSA to look at this data and start analyzing and start coming up with what do they think are the appropriate standards for autonomous vehicles before. They never had a data stream that would allow them to do that before. The second thing is, we're going to see autonomous vehicles in action in a real way that we've never seen before. So this comes back to the idea of normalization. Back in 2011, when I first heard of cars driving themselves, it seemed like this fantastical idea and I wanted to see one. 
And that will be what it's like for the first time that everybody sees one of these things coming down the road. But within a year or two, it won't be fantastical at all. It'll just be normal. It'll just be like rideshare was was new and different until it wasn't. Scooters were new and different until they weren't. And you become you become accustomed to things. And that's going to happen with autonomous vehicles. And I think it's happening in the most appropriate way, slow and lightweight, delivering goods in a community with what everybody has called a very cute little vehicle. I have to agree. We've made it, we've made a very cute little vehicle with a cute little face. And and we think people are going to like the service it provides. And when you see that this is happening safely and it becomes very a very normal part of our lives, it allows the regulators to have that social acceptance they need to take the next step. So you see that happening in 2020 or do you see that? Um... Yeah, what, what's going to happen in 2020 is we're going to scale our service and it's going to become a real thing in the city of Houston. And NHTSA is start, it's going to start getting a data stream from that. Now, does that mean that they're going to come up with their new rules this year? No, they won't come up with their new rules this year, but they're going to get a a much bigger start on it than they would have otherwise had they not passed the exemption. There's another, at least one other company has applied for a pretty significant exemption, but but around a vehicle that's supposed to have no human controls, but human and a human occupied vehicle, they've not gotten that exemption. You have. Do you think NHTSA is sending a a signal here about um? is it about high speed versus low speed? Is it about occupant vehicle versus non-occupant vehicle or, or zero occupant vehicle? What, how do you interpret sort of the, the or, or is that, do you think there's just totally different things involved and, and, and not to read too much into it? I think you hit the right things. First off, when you put a person inside the vehicle, it's a completely different safety construct. With us, because we have inanimate objects inside the vehicle. It's not something that they had to consider. They had to consider how well would this vehicle keep people safe outside the vehicle. And they were, they were, they were satisfied that, that that could be accomplished. If now they say we want to grant exemptions on a vehicle that also has to keep people safe inside the vehicle, they have to be much more cautious. And then it absolutely has to do with speed. Speed and weight are what affects how safe are things going to be in the case of an accident? You were referring to Cruz. Uh, we can, I think we can say the name. Um, so do you think that they will get the exemption? If so, do you think that that will happen this year? I don't know. I wish I could, I wish I could tell you what I, what I can say is we believe in the industry. We believe that all of the players in the industry have been very responsible in the, in the way that they've tested vehicles and how they're dealing with the federal government. Uh-huh. At least the Are you yeah, sure? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Let's back up. Back wow, up. this is a guy. Come on, Dave. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 cross that piece out. <laughs> we believe that the big name players that we're talking about here are engaging in a very responsible way, and and we do think that moving the industry forward and granting exemptions like this is is a good idea cool <laughs> that uh this, guy, this guy's slick come on it's come on 
Uh, so this this gets you. We need to and we need to wrap up. We're running out of time. But this this gets you to to 2,500 uh, vehicles, right? This exemption um, is that uh, that allows you to scale up enough for Houston. Maybe should we be expecting announcements about maybe other cities? Or are you really focusing on Houston for now? We're focusing on Houston for now. Cool. Well, we've taken up a ton of your time. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, if uh, if folks want to follow uh, what you're up to or or maybe what Nero's up to, is there a good place to do that uh, on social media or elsewhere online? Yes, absolutely. Um, you should go to our LinkedIn page. Go to our go to our uh, medium posts. We're going to be. Guess what? We're going to hire our first head of communications this year, and so there's going to be a lot of great communications coming out from Neuro this coming year. Stay tuned. All right. Well, with that, um, thanks, David Estrada, for making the time to uh, to chat with us. Uh, really fascinating stuff, and. Um, we look forward to you joining us again on a future episode of the Atonicast. Great speaking with you guys. 